brand new episode of Public Health Uncoded podcast with Dr. Saroj Pachauri brought to you by Center for Human Progress in partnership with the Protect Our Planet movement. Dr. Saroj Pachauri, a public health expert, provides commentary on some of the major public health issues of the current times and the various determinants of public health at play with high-risk and vulnerable groups. Every month, Dr. Saroj Pachauri, a doctor of medicine and a distinguished public health scholar with over 60 years of experience, will unpack key public health concerns and opportunities in the current global arena with evidence and insights. In today's episode, which is part two of our discussion on the topic gender, we would again like to welcome our special guest, Ms. Madhubala Nath, with Dr. Saroj Pachauri to uncode the topic. In the previous part of the episode, Ms. Madhubala Nath shared with our listeners her experiences from 1980s to the progress made so far. In today's episode, Dr. Pachauri will lead the discussion to give us insight on the challenges and the impact of pandemic on achieving the SDG 5 target. I, Trisha Patak, welcome once again Ms. Madhubala Nath and Dr. Saroj Pachauri. Welcome once again, Madhu. I'd like to go on, if I may, the problem that I have been working with much of my life I've worked on sexual and reproductive health and rights, and I realized that, you know, we have tended to work with women because we are trying to improve their sexual and reproductive health and rights. But to work with women on women's issues is okay, but it's not enough. We've learned over time that to make a difference, we need to get the support and engagement of men as well. Now, this is, a, again, an area that is not new. We have been working on this for quite some time, actually, and we've also done research in this area and have shown positive results. But it remains a challenge to get men involved. Just to give you an example, Madhu, yeah. uh, you know, we, uh, when I was working in the Population Council, we undertook research on men in maternity. And this was a research project that continued for, for about five long years, in which we tried to involve men in maternity care, maternal health, family planning, and so on. And we showed the results, which were very positive in terms of outcomes for both men and women. And, and so it's not something we don't quite know. We know quite a bit about it. And we've also done research to provide the evidence. But the fact still remains that we have made very little change in getting the support of an, an engagement of men in the area of sexual and reproductive health and rights. Would you like to say something about this? Yeah, Saroj, yes. Uh, it's a very important area where you have done a lot of work and we have uh, benefited from these kinds of uh, empirical inquiries that have been undertaken. On the positive note, the fact that there is now an understanding and a recognition that male involvement is fundamental to move the issue of gender equality forward, especially in the area of sexual and reproductive health. Um, this is a step forward that we realize that male involvement is very, very important. Now, there are two concepts, and I'm Excuse me for using some sociological jargon, but I think I would like to use these two words uh, to be able to make the point that I want to make. Mm -hmm. The first thing that I would like to bring up here is that there is something known as hegemonic masculinity. Now, this hegemonic masculinity is a standard that is adopted in terms of how men should behave to express their masculinity, especially in the area of sexual and reproductive health. Correct. And it also expresses why we say hegemonic is that the environment within which boys and men uh, boys and uh, men grow and become uh, become um, uh, fathers uh, 
that environment is also something that requires much more research and attention. You were, of course, a pioneer and, you know, we all benefited from that. Now, what has come out of these kinds of empirical inquiries is that we know that young men are encouraged to gain sexual experience. And the more the sexual experience they gain, the more popular they are in the eyes of their peers. We all know that. We also know that the common um, uh, thing going around is, you know, male sexuality is unrestrainable. Yeah. Having an STD is considered to be a badge of honor. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> men are stigmatized if they don't demonstrate a wide sexual experience. And sexual decision-making has to be controlled by men, not women. That is the big one. Yeah, and therefore coercive sex, sexual violence should be condoned. He's only doing what he's supposed to do under hegemonic masculinity laws. Then this hegemonic masculinity therefore legitimizes unequal roles and relationships between men and women. And those who don't live up to these ideals are weak, subservient, immature or effeminate. Now, Mm. until these are completely demolished and new learnings that are more gender equal are built, we are struggling and we have not spent enough time understanding this part and taking it forward. Number two. This other um, jargon kind of a thing which I was wanting to share here was something called the patriarchal dividend. Now, what is the patriarchal dividend? Patriarchal dividend is the, the, the security people think men get out of patriarchy. And as a result, men are ignored, actually. We are talking of male responsibility. But in how many programs of India do we have male uh, ashas going out and talking to uh, men in the field? We don't have male field workers in the area because we feel men don't need it. Men are powerful enough. Women are the ones who need it. Somewhere something has gone fixed in our thinking. So as a result, we we have not been able to understand men's perspective fully before involving them in these programs, before fixing male responsibility on them. Now, if men believe that condoms will make them important, or if men believe that their masculinity is threatened by the use of condoms, and that was proven by the way in which one of the advertisements for condoms, when they showed an aggressive male, the sales went up. So I think Mm. these are the kinds of things where a lot of unlearning is needed. The patriarchal dividend has in fact left out men and after Cairo there was not even one program or project started for men all programs on sexual and reproductive health were aimed at it came much later and I think men lost out on that men and women lost out on that of course you're right men lost out and as a consequence gender equality was was sort of didn't reach its conclusion yeah but you know some of the work that's been done also shows that the fact that that men have to live up to this image of masculinity and all of that it causes a lot of stress within them right it's not something they aspire for that because that's the expectation in society but in fact it causes a tremendous amount of internal stress and, and it excludes them from everywhere yeah it excludes them so it's something that's difficult for them as well yes and but if you notice the kind of done. programs that we have on male involvement very few are addressing these core issues of the patriarchal development and the hegemonic masculinity there was some work that was done in the slums uh, right looking at uh, uh, at this, these issues and yeah. the idea of that work was to change the image of men Absolutely. in men's mind and in the societal framework you know right. and that made that was some early work which we did but it uh, it needs to go much further right. I mean in the larger perspective very little has been done in terms of engaging men as responsible husbands and fathers yes. in, in sexual reproductive health work. Right. And the other the other problem on the health side is that, you know, uh, the health system itself, the health system itself is patriarchal. Right. You know, after all, it's made of the same men and women. And, and it is as patriarchal and as gender discriminatory. Right. And and one one thing that one piece of work that's been done now is to look at maternal health and look at how maternal health is being handled in the health system and you realize how insulting it is insulting is the way that women who are in 
delivering in the hospitals or in the health centers are being treated. So now we are talking about respectful maternal care. Right. In and fact, the social yeah, basically like to make a difference to the health system, which is part of the larger social system. Right. In fact, you've touched upon a very important part of the delivery system, health delivery system, something that we call the social distance between the health provider and women. And and what I found in some of the work that I did in the field was that women with STIs were coming back after going to a health provider seeking care with painkillers for STIs. And I asked them, what did you tell the doctor? They said, uh, you know, STIs in our language is known as kamzori which means that um, I'm feeling weak. So the way I told the doctor was that I have a backache and I feel weak and they came back with painkillers. So this is a whole area that you've touched upon and I've just brought in this example that the orientation of healthcare providers from a gender perspective has not been done. And I think the MBBS colleges, the medical colleges where they get in even at the pre-med state, that is the time when gender orientation of providers, future providers is fundamental. Thinking all the way up to uh, male responsibility issue, male involvement. This is a very very important point, the kamzori. I have a backache and I feel me. I I have worked in these health systems also myself. Mm -hmm. And women will say, mujhe kamzori hai. Mm -hmm. This word kamzori can mean anything. Anything, yeah. It has multiple meanings. Now, unless you are sensitive to this vocabulary as a healthcare provider, you're not going to be able to do anything. I don't remember, I I don't know if you remember the book I wrote on listening to women talk about their health. Ah, yeah, I've read that. Excellent. Well, that that sort of uh, illustration the way women talk about health you know what is their right. language that they use and of course in our country there are multiple languages but kamzori in the north is a term that women use for a zillion things right you know so this is also a question of how we understand and perceive the language and the expression of the patient in the health system one other thing saroj while we are talking of male responsibility i think mm-hmm. the stigma against men who have sex with men in most countries also mm-hmm. bars men from being open about their sexuality and may, mm-hmm. when we talk of male responsibility we we have men who have sex with men we have men who have sex with women we have men who have sex with men and women mm-hmm. and i think the gamut or the spectrum to include men has to be opened up to be open for all these kinds of sexual needs of men. In fact, one very interesting input I got in one of our discussions with men was that men see anal sex with women also as conquering the women's virginity a second time. Do you mm-hmm. see the power dynamics here? Yeah, that, that, and, that, and until these discussions are brought out into the open and sex and sexuality is spoken of without any any inhibitions by male providers, by sex provi- uh, providers of health, then we have uh, this will otherwise continue as a problem we don't discuss this in the in the health system at all yeah so this is an area it's worth flagging out or yeah. this has become an important part yeah, of unless, unless you get to the whole issue of sex and sexuality as it impacts men who have sex with men and men who have sex with women and, and a transgender and the other forms of gender it's not going to work exactly okay now uh, maybe we can go on to another issue which has been highlighted by the covid pandemic as you know we've been going through this terrible covid pandemic which has impacted everything in our lives. And it has also impacted this SDG 5 goal and targets. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have regressed in the achievements of the SDG 5 goal and targets because of COVID. Any gains that we had made have also been 
reverted. This is a, a very difficult problem um, because it's shown all over the world, in fact, that the, that as a consequence of COVID, for example, gender-based violence has increased and so on. We could carry on with that. But the main problem here is that we are lagging behind in achieving our goal, SDG 5 goal and its targets as a consequence thereof. So what do you think should be the priority strategies to progress in achieving this goal? What do you think we should do? Very perplexing problem. And it's very disheartening because even the gains that we had made with so much effort and, and with so much difficulty have also been reverted. Right, right. I think um, before I go into what's happening, um, we had done a, an empirical inquiry, a research into the socioeconomic impact of COVID in India from mm-hmm. a gender perspective. Yes. And as one delved into uh, our discussions with men and women and the LGBTQ communities in the country, mm-hmm. uh, looking at what COVID did to their lives and livelihoods. Some of our findings were extremely stark. And I I won't take too much time, but just as I speak, uh, you will see how the SDG goal number five has been impacted already. Mm-hmm. What we found was that non-workers swelled in numbers and there were more women non-workers at that time as mm-hmm. compared to men. Mm-hmm. So the work got impacted. Mm-hmm. In the area of uh, uh, agriculture, mm-hmm. uh, because of the fact that there were lock- lockdowns and uh, and women were stuck in the house, mm-hmm. uh, 46% of the women said we have been stuck in the house and our farm work has been delayed. Yes, that, And that has had an impact on the produce and the incomes. When we looked at uh, consumption of food as a result of this, more women than men were consuming less food. And yes. about 64% of the respondents had to curtail items of nutrition in Indebtedness increased and the children were badly impacted in the villages. Uh, this this study was done on the informal sector. Mm-hmm. And uh, because there are the, the, the country doesn't have the kind of the digital divide is so high. And only 16% females have internet access mm-hmm. in the villages. And so even giving their phones to the children to be able to attend classes was an impossibility. So there was uh, this continuation of education had a huge impact mm-hmm. on uh, and both men and uh, women respondents stated that more than 43% of the girls may have had to discontinue their education. Child marriages started showing. Yeah, again increased, increased yes and uh, besides women's care burden increase we all know that and 88 percent of the care workers in the villages for covid were all women yes a total of uh, only 25 percent of the newly born babies could get their regular inoculations during covid major major problem yes and only 22 percent of the women said that they had access to the health workers to provide the necessary medical attention for their pregnancies. The remaining uh, 78% pregnant women did not have access because the ASHAs had been redeployed for uh, um, COVID relief work. So this yes, is the kind that, of, uh, yeah, the, the, the impact. As a result of COVID, since everything was diverted to, towards COVID prevention and treatment, all the other health services were impacted. And right. women definitely had a greater impact than men, even greater. Right. right. And so if you look at the whole issue of uh, the, uh, the SDG 5, and what it was aiming at, there is a very clear reversal because mm-hmm. the SDG 5 talks about ending violence. Gender-based violence shot up. With no, when men couldn't buy alcohol, they were sitting at home or they did get alcohol, but at the cost of nutrition and fo- food for the family, there was uh, uh, the kind of uh, violence increases. SDG 5, there is a setback. Forced marriages, as we spoke about child marriages coming up. And what was very interesting is that what brought about the child marriages was a vision and an, and, and a, a knowledge that we are going to be poorer now. And the government order says that during the lockdown, you can have marriages, but invite only 20 people. So families thought, let's marry off our children with only these 20 people. Otherwise, we can't afford the marriages. So government order. Yeah, it was amazing how that stirred this whole thing of child marriages. Quite right. So forced marriages, child marriages are coming back, which, which was one 
of the targets of the SDGs, of the SDG 5. We had to promote shared uh, domestic responsibilities under SDG 5. Nothing was being done. The women's burden of care was increasing. Then uh, universal access to reproductive and healthcare services. You saw, I gave you some numbers. And above all, women were being left behind as assetless women because now some of them, whatever little assets they had, like a cow or a goat or a they were selling them off to be able to deal with their indebtedness. I think the goals of the SDGs are going to be impacted quite badly. This was study was done in 2020. And I think it is time to sort of, again, review at least with a small qualitative sample as to how much <clears throat> gains we have made um, after the lockdowns were over. But otherwise, the picture looked quite gloomy. But we should have uh, proactive strategies to, to counter this now, don't you think? I will share with you some of the strategies that um, were suggested after this, but unfortunately could not be fully implemented. One of the strategies uh, that was suggested was that, you know, women are assetless. And women are getting jobless. So what is very, very important is to empower women with common property resources that exist in the villages mm -hmm. by leasing these assets to women's group mm -hmm. for at least 10 to 15 years. And knowing women and the way they can work together, they will be able to use these assets and at least be able to ensure that nutrition and food are available for the family. But not giving uh, you know, short-term funds for buying meals three, for three months in a year. Giving them long-term assets of common mm. property resources, grazing lands, wastelands, with, with, with the technology to be able to use them as productive resources. But that, unfortunately, has not been done as of now. The second was that, you know, there is this um, uh, health insurance scheme of the government of India, which the prime minister has propagating and using all over. We had suggested that under that, create using existing um, buildings in the villages, panchayat offices for part-time use, and create healthcare centers there so that women's burden of health care is paid through the scheme. And the care that women exercise, which is unpaid, becomes a paid resource. And train women in how to deal with um, COVID and its aftermath. But that also has not been done up till now for reasons which uh, I'm not sure of at this juncture. So these were the kinds of things that were needed to be able to sort of stir or shake off the impact of COVID and uh, rebound, give the rebound necessary, not just for the short term, but for the long term. Well, it's sad to hear that none of this was done. We need to double up our, our effort. And the third thing, Saroj, which I forgot to mention was that there are panchayat level nyayalias, which, are, which have uh, judicial authorities at the village level. The idea mm. was to train those authorities, nyayalias, in gender-based violence laws and regulations so that women can at least access this. Otherwise, as of now, um, our infrastructure for uh, saving a woman from uh, gender-based violence is, is too far from now. So that was the third thing, to make access to uh, a redressal for gender-based violence under the law possible by using the local nyayalias there and training the judges there in this and using the local women's groups as the agency to be used for protection for the woman that is seeking help instead of protection officers. But none of these have been implemented. And that's very unfortunate, I, I must say. But all of these are really good suggestions and I'm sure there are many more that one could come up with if one was to think it through carefully. But more importantly, these have to be implemented. And I think yeah. that we really ought to double our efforts because we've lost so much in the process of the COVID pandemic in terms of the SDG goals and targets that to make up all this, we need to therefore double up our efforts and move forward very proactively to 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 move the SDG goal forward rather than backwards as it has happened, don't you think? Absolutely. And what I want to reiterate is for this kind of a setback that has happened, asset creation is fundamental and not just giving 1,000 rupees every second month to every woman which has been done up till now. You have to create assets for groups of women 
and create the women's agency. That has shown uh, positive results in over the years and we have to foster that. We need long-term efforts that will sustain. Yeah. And now finally, I'll come to the last question that we might discuss, Madhu, and it's based on your excellent chapter that you submitted for a book on gender that I was writing, which is on the cost of gender disparity. Very important. I was very impressed with the chapter. I would like you to share your thoughts on it because you gave some excellent examples from India. You focused on India, I recall, to illustrate your point. Can you, can you say a few words on this, please, if you could? Yes, Saroj. I think, um, well, I based my chapter on a contemporary discourse that brought out by Amar, Dr. Amartya Sen and Martha Nosbaum and the concept of multiple deprivations and capability poverty. This was based on the fact that they outlined that a nation's wealth, if it is analyzed, they found that only 16% of a nation's wealth lies in its economic growth, which is GDP per capita. 20% comes from its natural resources like forests, minerals, etc. And 64% of a nation's wealth comes or lies in its human capabilities. Now, this is a very, very self-explanatory uh, kind of a discourse that brings out that if you don't invest in your human capabilities, the cost will be very high. And that is the discourse I picked up and analyzed a lot of data. And it just matched so beautifully into this. So what did we find? We found that the data for India was clear that if gender-based violence is not addressed, the odds for non-life birth increase by 40% just because of gender-based violence. And this costs the system. The odds for facility-based delivery are reduced by 13%. The odds for stunting amongst children increase if gender-based violence is not addressed. And World Bank estimates were showing that one out of five healthy days of life lost to are lost to the woman if she comes from a situation where she's suffering gender-based violence. And women who had been raped or assaulted had medical costs, which were two and a half times higher than women who had not faced gender-based violence. So just gender-based violence has an impact of high costs on sexual and reproductive health and on other forms of women's uh, health needs. The other thing that we found in the data was it came out categorically that in Kerala, the impact of the population program was so fast and so good because in that state, the investment in human capabilities had been high. Education literacy was high in Kerala. We all know that. Life expectancy was high. Access to health care was high. And so the impact of our population uh, program, even before it took roots in other states, Kerala was way ahead in terms of reducing fertility and reaching replacement levels of fertility. Yeah, so again, these costs, and I have figures for the actual costs uh, that were there, but I will move on in the interest of time to share a few other uh, uh, other researches which, which have been done by premier organizations like the International Labor Organization. And what they have found is that the, uh, that the uh, closing of the gender gap in labor participation by 2025 would increase global GDP by 5.3 trillion US dollars. It's enormous. Again, they also found in another study that India could boost its growth by 1.5 percentage points if 50% of women joined the workforce. So, I mean, there is enough data that is showing that the cost of bringing in women into the development mainstream only has benefits for all of us. Yes. Um, one, one interesting uh, thing that I want to just highlight here is that besides working on sectors like the agriculture sector or the manufacturing sector and looking at the costs of uh, ignoring gender, there are now studies that have been done in the corporate sector as well. And a study conducted by Catalyst in 2007 explored three parameters to measure a company's financial performance. And these were return on equity, return on sales and return on invested capital. And what they found was that 
Companies with the highest percentage of women board directors perform better in terms mm. of return to equity than those with the lowest percentage of women board directors. The return on sales also showed that companies with more female directors outperformed those with fewer female directors. And the return on invested capital, the figure was 66%. So it's clearly there now in studies. And a review by Harvard has shown that companies had 15% more profits when they had women occupying 30% of the leadership position. So the data is crying out that if you don't invest in women, you only lose. The costs are pretty high. The cost argument that you made is a very important one because even if you're not interested in gender or anything, the very fact that it makes a difference to the cost will be a very positive factor and especially at the policy level. You know, right. I think we, we really should, I, why I liked your chapter so much and the work that you cited, the statistics that you cited was because it's very important for us to use that data to propagate the issue, the issues that we are concerned with, which are basically sociocultural, actually, but nonetheless would make a difference in terms of policy action at the highest levels, because cost is a factor that impact that is a very important, you know, it, it really does make a big difference to everybody and nobody will argue against it. So I, I think that this, this is a very good argument that we can make right. to change policy. To change policy, yeah. but it will be bought. It will be bought. In fact, the corporate sector, which is focused, which focuses all its efforts on profit, 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 and more profit. In 2019, the gender lens in investing became such a priority that it reached over 2.4 billion in assets, and at least 15 new publicly traded gender lens equity funds were launched. Now, this success speaks of the fact that this is a reality. And if you want to do well, corporates have to adopt a gender lens in their investing and in their uh, HR. Yes. Well, uh, I think that uh, maybe we should end on this optimistic note. And, and you have raised very, very powerful arguments, provided statistics and numbers to support the arguments. And I think that this this could be a one one possible way, one of many possible ways to move the agenda forward on uh, reducing gender disparities, which, as we know, is a global problem. It affects every country, it affects every region, and leads to leads to terrible things like gender-based violence and and uh, and uh, so on. And so I think maybe recognizing that these are all interlinked, in fact, all of these issues that we have discussed, even if we discuss them as separate issues, are really all quite interlinked. And I think that it's very important to understand that these are interlinked, that they are very complex. And that's perhaps one of the reasons why we have made so little, we made so little progress. And when we have made progress, it's been undone by the COVID pandemic. And therefore, it argues for us to move forward even more strongly and boldly. Thank you so much, Madhu. Thank you, Saroj. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, Ms. Madhubala Nath and Dr. Pachari. I'm greatly surprised to know the facts that you unlaid. This episode can definitely compel our listeners to discuss more about the various challenges rightly pointed out by Ms. Madhubala Nath, like why there are no male peers to spread education about sexual and reproductive health, like our ASHA workers. And do we try to understand male's perspective before we build these programs for gender equality for SRHR? Whereas these questions have always existed, now some more challenges have come up due to the COVID pandemic, how women were greatly impacted due to pandemic from nutritional, social, health and economical point of view, and why some of the strategies that were suggested to stir the impact of COVID were not executed leading to retraction from our own targets to achieve SDG 5. All the facts and the statistics mentioned by Ms. Madhubala Nath in the podcast today is covered in her chapter, Cost of Ignoring Gender, of the book, Transforming Unequal Gender Relations, an Intersectional 
perspective on challenges and opportunities which is edited by Dr. Saroj Pachauri herself and Dr. Ravi Verma which is yet to be released this year. I'm sure you all equally enjoyed both the parts of this episode on gender as I did because apart from the facts presented there were so many questions that were raised during the discussion which I'm still thinking about. I can't wait to have another discussion where we bring you once again an important topic at Public Health Uncoded with Dr. Saroj Pachauri brought to you by Center for Human Progress in partnership with the Protect Our Planet movement. Till then, stay tuned. <laughs>